Man, Craig, I could watch you play drums all day long, brother. <laughs> so much fun. I need <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> you are not wrong. Hey, you know, um, real quick before we get started, normally on Sunday mornings, I'm upstairs uh, working a youth Zoom call right now. We got some really faithful youth Zoomers on there. And one of them, it actually today is her birthday, and she was so disappointed that we weren't going to be able to celebrate on Zoom together. So what better way than for all of us to join in together, wish her a happy birthday. So on the count of three, would you just say happy birthday, Lily, with me? Ready? One, two, three. Happy birthday, Lily. Awesome. Thank you guys for entertaining me. Lily, we're grateful for you, my friend. Um, All right, time to get serious. Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 8. Here's what it says. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And all the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire, it consumes briars and thorns, it kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke, Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim, and Ephraim devours devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Ah, Syria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend. 
and his heart does not so think. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kauno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand is found like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. Shall the ax boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. So this text is a real bummer after last week. And uh, David and I were talking beforehand about how kind it was of Nathan to leave this one for me while he took a well-deserved rest. So thank you, brother. Uh, you know, we've just come off the heels last week of this awesome messianic prediction, just like this neon sign that Jesus is coming. We're excited about it. We're flying high. And then Isaiah just brings us down again, right? Just all the way down to the bottom. Or at least that's how it seems. Because here's reality. Life exists in this back and forth um, oscillating spectrum between what is a future glorious hope and what is a present confusing mess. And Isaiah speaks into that reality. Isaiah does look forward to, as one author puts it, a vision of hope for sinners through the coming Messiah. But the path that goes there goes through the sludge and grime of our, our mess-upness and just, I, I don't have any other word for this, I'm sorry parents, but our sheer dumbness. We are real mess-ups, guys. In half the Bible is God trying to convince his people to take themselves a lot less seriously and lean on him a whole lot more. And that's not a, that's not a bummer, that's dignifying, okay? So say that after church today, you and I decide we're gonna stop by Planet Fitness and get our fit on together, okay? If while we're there, I walk up to the bench press and I'm just slapping on 600 pounds worth of weight and then I get down to push out a few, you see me, okay? What is more dignifying that moment? For you to let me go through with it and give it my best and completely embarrass myself and probably my arms just pop off like a little Lego man? Or for you to stop me, help me humbly assess what I can and cannot do, and then walk with me on the journey to get strong enough to do it? It's dignifying to help someone humbly assess themselves even while holding up a bright future. And it's grace to then stick with them on the journey to that future. Isaiah is interested in restoring dignity to his people within the confidence of God's grace. And I think we can say too today that Jesus, for us, is interested in restoring dignity to his people within the confidence of God's grace. No more slouch Christianity. 
We are not interested in a Christianity that beats us into a terrified, guilt-ridden, hard shell or in one that dials down the intensity and gives us our cake so we can eat it too. We want the real thing. So a few things we need to notice here, okay? Um, We talked about this for a few weeks, so I'm not gonna go over the whole history of Israel, okay? But all we need to know, the nation of Israel has split into two. The Northern Kingdom has kept the name. They're still called Israel. The Southern Kingdom is called Judah now. Isaiah is preaching to Judah. But if you notice, he switches who he's speaking about in this passage. He starts talking about the Northern Kingdom, Israel. Things have not gone well in Israel since they left, okay? They are not following their God. They have turned to other foreign powers, hoping they can help them and were just betrayed. And by the time we get to our passage today, they are beginning to fall to the big bad guys of the time, the Assyrians. Eventually in 722 BC, Israel will fall and they will be taken into exile. And our text today actually points forward to this time. So we're talking about Israel, but remember Isaiah is talking to Judah, the Southern kingdom. God through Isaiah is telling Judah where Israel has gone wrong and what is coming their way because of it so that they will learn and turn back to him. And I think we can say, too, that God is today speaking to us, trying to teach us to turn around and come back to him, to learn from Israel. So I don't normally do points, but I'm breaking the trend. This morning, we have three things to learn alongside Judah. And actually, Will, if you can go back to the slide just before it with all three. Here they are. We cannot outfail his grace. We cannot have his love without his discipline and we cannot keep him at a distance. So point number one, we cannot outfail his grace. Grace, in case you're wondering, is God's undeserved favor to us, toward you and me. It's the reality that he, God, is willing to take our failure and our weakness and just give himself in exchange. We don't earn it, we don't deserve it, it's undeserved. And that's exactly what we see here with Israel. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, Israel had, it's an understatement to say, utterly failed God. We're not talking about every once in a while. We're not talking about some isolated incidents. Israel had completely rejected God, and they kind of had relegated God into this position of being a safety net God, okay? I know you may not believe this. It's hard to wrap your mind around, but I am an expert in rejection. And the only thing worse, I can tell you, than being rejected is being somebody's safety net right? A safety net is somebody who I know that they really like me, so I'm just kind of going to drag them along for a while, just in case nothing else works out for me. I always got them in the back pocket, right? That's a safety net, and Israel has essentially made the Lord of hosts a safety net. Look back at chapter 10, verse 5 with me. Should be the next one, Will. We'll just read it instead. Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in my hand, in their hands is my fury against a godless nation I send him and against the people of my wrath I command him. A godless nation. At this point, Israel will be saying, wait, 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 wait. A godless nation? We are not a godless. We are your people, Syria. They're the godless ones, right? Israel in their pride and foolishness thought that God would be content to just hang around at their disposal when they needed him simply because they were his people. 
In the meantime, they functioned, they lived as if God didn't factor into their lives. They lived as if they were a godless nation, so God says they become like a godless nation. But even though they lived like they were godless, God had not abandoned them. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 20, I'm stealing Nathan's thunder just a little bit, but he deserves it after this week. We read this hope. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them. That's the nations who have betrayed them that they trusted. But instead, they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Israel's failure did not hinder God's faithfulness to them. I have a friend who, uh, she tells a story from very early on in her marriage, and she's a little bit older than me, so yes, it really was early on, not a 28-year-old saying early on, okay? So she and her husband met while they were working at a Christian camp together, and if we're honest, it's really easy to fall in love with somebody when your job is to you know, shoot Nerf guns and play games and talk about Jesus all day, okay? Yes, they 100% followed the Lord's leading. They knew he was drawing them together, but it's easier to fall in love there, right? So when they were leaving and they're heading back home, you guys who are married, you know this reality. It's no longer fun all the time, right? You step into real life and you realize, I'm a little bit different than this person. And then you start to realize how different you are and how little you might have in common with them. You know, uh, it is so awkward I've had to do this so many times. It is so awkward to sit across the table from someone who you just cannot figure out how to talk to. It's even worse if that person is the one you married. And night after night, you're just like, how do I talk with you? So my friend finally hit her breaking point one night. After another silent day, she just breaks down sobbing, like ugly crying sobbing. I am, I am a grown man, but when a woman cries in front of me, I do not know what to do. I go back to like fifth grade. I'm looking for a pudding cup just to be like, let's make you feel better. I hope you get over it. I don't know. It's awkward. So I can't imagine the sheer dread this guy must have felt as his recent wife this early on is just weeping at the dinner table. And she starts just opening up about all the things that she's held in, all the fears, all the anxieties, all the worries. And then she finally comes to the big one. She says, did we make a mistake? Should we get a divorce? And her husband gets up and he leaves the room. And she's, of course, thinking like, that's it. I've done it. That didn't even take long. But he's probably packing his bags right now. And after some of the tensest moments of their lives, he comes back into the room and he throws down on the table a pile of magazines. And he sits down next to her and he says, we are going to sit here and read these magazines until we find something to talk about and we will never mention that word ever again. That is not an option. I don't care how long it takes. We're gonna figure this out. This is God's commitment to his people. God in his faithful covenant love refuses the option to call it quits and utterly abandon them. It's off the table. He will not go back on his promises ever. He says to his people, one way or another, we are going to sit here until we figure this out. I don't care how long or what it takes. And on his part, he will not release them from the covenant of his faithful love, even if they are unfaithful. And that frames how we read this section of Isaiah. Ray Orland, I love this. He calls the section of Isaiah we're in the triumph of grace over our failure. 
It doesn't sound like that when we're reading it, but that is the actual story. This is not the story of how God was fed up with his people and is just letting them have it. He's just done, venting everything. This is the story about how God's people fail time and time and time and time and time and time again, and still God's grace had the final word. And if we could say that in the time of a lesser covenant, what could we say now that we're in a better covenant? All right, and that's the Bible's words, not mine. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we now exist in a better covenant because it's a covenant written in the blood of Jesus. And Paul picks up this thinking later when he says, what will God not do for us if he's already given us the most precious thing in the world, his son? How is God going to give us his son when we are still his enemies and then go back on it once we're his kids? He won't do that. In a time where we daily see the world shut out people they deem to have failed too much, who doesn't need a non-accusatory safe place to stand? Ready yet, forget about what other people think. Who doesn't need someone to quiet the accuser in their own head? Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross so that you and I could stand in him without condemnation anymore. And I know we want to say, yeah, but what if? Nope. But if I do this thing over and over again, doesn't matter. But there's got to come a line somewhere along the way. There's not. Friends, we are now more assuredly in the love of God than we could know and therefore are more secured in his grace than we can imagine ways to fail him. We cannot outfail God's grace towards us. But our continuing in the grace of God does not mean we're excluded from his discipline, all right? So point two, we cannot have his love without his discipline. You know, uh, anytime when I was a kid that I would try to get away with something because my friends were doing it, I would try to, you know, go on my razor scooter down the big hill and I'd be like, well, Drew did it. My mom would say to me, well, I'm not Drew's mom. And we don't do things like that in this family, so you're gonna do what I say, right? My being securely part of the family didn't mean the expectations were less, it meant the opposite. My parents, don't ever tell them I said this, but my parents could reasonably expect my brother and I to do what they said, okay? And if we didn't do what they said, then we would listen to their correction, right? Most of the time that correction was pretty straightforward, simple at first, but if it seemed like this was going to be something we pushed the boundaries on, it became more strict and targeted, right? Guys, we belong to God's family, and there's a certain way we do things in God's family. Being held within God's grace through Jesus does mean we're not going to flunk out of the family, but it does not mean God takes our obedience less seriously. We have been given this crazy, wild gift of being God's kids, his representatives of his kingdom to this world. Why would we think that God would then lower the expectations for us? No, no, no. God sets an incredibly high standard and then graciously meets us in our failure. And at the place he meets us in our failure, he offers correction, not to beat us down, but to call us up. God's discipline is an act of his love, okay? But here's what some people are gonna say right now. That's great, but this passage doesn't talk about discipline. It says anger, okay? Chapter nine, verse 12. 
this is repeated, for all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Okay, four times Isaiah repeats this. This is the worst bumper sticker ever, okay? If God is worried about PR, this is a nightmare. No one would choose this God, right? This God is so angry at his own people. Why would I elect to be a part of that family? But friends, the truth is, what else could we want? Not just what could we expect, but what else could we want? God's perfect anger is an outworking of his perfect love. It's because he loves his people that he gets angry. And women in the room, okay, you guys know this better than anyone, all right? All of you have at some point played the babe what if game, okay? As in, babe, what if I didn't have any hair? Would you still love me? Or babe, if I grew 10 extra fingers, would you still find me beautiful? Or babe, what if, not that I've thought about this ever, of course, just totally hypothetical, babe, but babe, what if, I don't know, I was kidnapped by Russian warlords and they took me to Siberia. Would you come rescue me in Siberia and, and would you fight their little army and then would you rescue me and take me home? If in that moment your husband says, Siberia, that's, that's pretty cold there. How many guys did you say there were? Yeah, I think I'm gonna call it, cut my losses at that point. I'm calling it quits right there. You would be furious. Why? Because your husband not being angry says to you, his lack of anger and compassion says to you that he doesn't really love you. If he loves you, he'll be passionate. He'll be angry about this. How could God really love us if he didn't get angry at our self-destructive failure? How could we think we are God's kids if he doesn't offer correction when we go astray? We couldn't. The fact that God gives us such a high calling and then graciously meets us and guides us into it means he really does love us. Uh, again, Ray Orland is so helpful here. Actually, I think we have this on slide. Uh, here we go. What is the wrath of God? His wrath is his active, resolute opposition to all evil. His delight is spontaneous and intrinsic to his being, but his wrath is provoked by the defiance of his creatures. His love will never, that's supposed to be make, peace with our evil. I put these in, by the way, that's my fault. What we must understand is that God's wrath is perfect. No less perfect than the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience. His wrath is not moody vindictiveness. It is the solemn determination of a doctor cutting away the cancer that's killing his patient. And for God, the anger is personal, not detached and clinical. This doctor hates the cancer because he loves the carriers of the disease and he will rid the universe of all their afflictions. Friends, our hope is bound up in the fact that God is angry. If God does not inexplicably love us, miserable and helpless us, so much so that he hates sin with fierce anger, then we have no hope. Because his love for us and anger towards sin is what leads him into action to help us. Do you know, do you know uh, what the biggest threat to the American honeybee population is? I know you were expecting that this morning. I did not, so I Googled it this week, okay? And this is just the content you came to church for, is the honeybee population. But the biggest threat to honeybees is, wait for it, the Varroa mite. I know, right? 
you all knew that already, and you're motivated now, like you're passionate. All right, the, these little guys, these little mites, they carry all sorts of diseases, and when they get into a bee colony, they spread the diseases, and it kills the colony very, very, very quickly. It's a huge threat to bees, apparently. So now that you know, are you just motivated to go and do something about this? Like, are the bees, do they have more hope because you're on the case now? Probably not. Why? Because honestly, you couldn't care less about bees. You didn't come here to talk about bees. And because you don't love the bees, you don't hate the mite, and you won't be drawn into action to help them. What if God cared as little about our sin as you and I care about the Varroa mite? It would not mean that we can live a, a happier and freer life because God's off our backs. We're finally gonna get to do what we want. It would mean we live a half-life, stunted by a disease we don't even recognize and utterly without hope. And it would mean God did not really love us. God is angry towards sin because his heart is tender toward us. And that moves God into action. But going under the knife is not fun, right? It hurts. It's uncomfortable, and frankly, we'd rather avoid as long as we can. I have had a hurt knee since about December. I just went to the doctor on Friday about it. Why? Because honestly, I don't want to know what's wrong with me because then I have to do something about it. So I'd rather just not go because going under the knife is not fun. And that's exactly how Israel felt. All right, point three. We cannot keep him at a distance. The first three times Isaiah tells us of God's anger, he does so after God has called out something specific in them that they failed in and then told them what is coming to discipline them with, okay? And again, this is out of his love that he's doing this. He's trying to turn them around. So starting at the end of verse 11, we catch this. I hope it's here, okay. Uh, to Israel, but the Lord raises the adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. Actually, you can go back still, that's okay. Uh, but the Lord raises them up. Do you catch that? This is God actively raising up the enemies. Israel has been beaten and battered, but you know, rather than ask, how did I get in this place in the first place? They laugh it off and say, it's fine. We'll build bigger and better than ever. This is gonna be great. This is our opportunity. They try to turn it around without actually dealing with any of it. Why? Maybe because their pride couldn't take it. Maybe because facing the truth somehow seemed worse. Maybe because they thought they could turn it around with how it happened to do, you know, the proverbial walk of shame back to God. They become self-deceived. And we see the consequences, which are also God's discipline, get steadily worse. At first, the threats were just from the outside, but then we read the threats come inward from their own leaders. We're told in verse 13 that the people have stopped even factoring God into the equation. Their leaders tell them everything is fine, guiding their people into evil, and it gets so bad. It gets so bad. This is what we get in verse 17. It should just be the next slide, Will. There we go. Therefore, the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. Those are the people God has traditionally paid special attention to. His heart goes out to them more than anyone else because they are weak and oppressed. Why do they do this though? Because everyone is godless and an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. This is how bad it has gotten in Israel that even those who God has special care for have turned away from him. And then 
in its sin, Israel devours itself. Isaiah said, wickedness burns like a fire and the people are like fuel for the fire and no one spares another. Sin and its self-perpetuating destruction has so corrupted God's people that they can't even see their slaves to it. And finally, at the opening of chapter 10, Israel is utterly given up. Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. The discipline of God works in two ways. On the one hand, it's clear that God is in some sense active in working in this discipline for his people. He has brought their enemies against them and he has raised up brother against brother. But on the other hand, it's clear that God is in some sense giving his people over to what they wanted. They wanted to live like a godless nation, so God let them live like a godless nation. Consequences and all. It's like uh, in Aladdin, when the genie gets finally, when uh, Jafar gets turned into a genie, and then he gets trapped in the lamp, and the genie has to say, itty bitty living space, right? The consequences of your choice, I'll give it to you, all of it, including the consequences. Both are God's loving discipline, his action against the disease of sin, and Israel ignored both. So can we ask a question of honest assessment for a moment? Do we really believe that God takes how we live seriously? Do we believe there are actual consequences for our sins that we cannot fix? Or, if we were truly honest, do we think more like, you know, it'll be fine. God loves me. It'll all work out. You know, I will just show how serious I am about doing better next time, and, and then it'll all be good once we're back to normal after a little bit of time. And then the next time that I toe the line, we'll just kind of start the cycle up again. Do we think, you know, what, what can I do with this? How can I make this mess better? How can I get myself out of this rut? Do we think, I, I heard a speaker one time say, it made me cringe, that he does not ask Jesus for forgiveness anymore because... Jesus has already forgiven him, so he doesn't need to ask for forgiveness. And do we sometimes buy into that thinking as well? We are living in a day and age when the private sins of a few well-known Christians have been exposed, and we're finding out how far their private sins really go. How widespread the effects of disobedience go beyond themselves. Each of these Christians fell into this cycle. They thought it would be fine in the end and that they had time to make things right eventually. They hardened their hearts and protected them from feeling God's correction because honestly, it's hard to bear sometimes. It is easier to presume on grace or to think that you can make it better because it means we don't have to admit that sometimes, sometimes we cannot fix things and we cannot receive forgiveness at a distance. The messy process of repentance is really hard it is, guys. We bring our failure to Jesus and have to look him in the eye, knowing everything he's done for me and everything I've done again and again, even if I know better. And then I have to ask him to do what I have no right of my own to ask him. Forgive me. I can't do this on my own, Jesus. Help me to live better, to do things your way. And how humbling is that? It's vulnerable. 
I feel it every time I have to go to Jesus and ask for forgiveness, this discomfort that I don't want him to see me that way. I don't want to have to face that. And honestly, every time I expect anger in return, I expect what we get with Israel here, okay? I expect to have words just kind of thrown down from heaven and God's just gonna let me have it finally because I would deserve that. I expect to be shamed and condemned, but in all the years I've known Jesus, he has never done that. And some of you have known Jesus a lot longer than me and you can say the same thing. So here, uh, here's my obligatory Lord of the Rings quote. You knew it was coming eventually. There's a line in the first book that I love. He looked up and met her eyes and it seemed to him that he looked suddenly into the heart of an enemy and saw there love and understanding. That is how Jesus has always received me, how he would receive all of us. That's how Jesus would have received Israel. We can come to Jesus broken. We can come to Jesus dirty. We can come to Jesus as failures. We can come to Jesus with nothing to bargain with. In fact, that is the only way we can come. The one thing we cannot do is keep Jesus at a comfortable, polite, different distance. The work he does is up close and it gets down into our very core and it is messy and painful and confusing and good and freeing and gracious. And the truth is, what other option do we have? God's loving discipline will find us out one way or another. Listen to this. God is no cardboard cutout. He is a real person with real anger and real love. He has wonderful things he wants to talk to us about. His grace can recover everything we have failed to be, but he will not negotiate with our (laughs) self-exaltation. This is good. God may walk up to you at some point and punch you right in the nose and knock you flat. But why? Why does God blindside us at times? Because the only way we'll listen is the hard way. He would rather lead us gently beside still waters, but he will not settle for a polite, religious unreality with us. Our king is gentle and lowly of heart toward those who come to him humbly, but he opposes all pride and unrighteousness. Against those, he is a consuming fire, the Bible tells us. God will not play with our sin. And if we, like Israel, choose to keep shoving it away, to opt for, Nathan keeps using this phrase and I really like it, opt for a buffered self, self-deceiving our own selves with a good image to hide the root issues, to live like functionally godless people, then God will find a way to break through, okay? Pause. If you're like me, uh, you do a really good job at keeping God at a distance. So here's my own self-assessment. I can read about Israel with some detachment. And I think we all can. I'm not quite like them, God. Like I wasn't doing that kind of stuff. Like I wouldn't live like that if I had the chance. So uh, God gave, we're gonna do a little assessment. God gave Israel 10 commandments, right? Let's see how we're doing. Do me a favor. This is the audience participation portion of our programming, okay? Do me a favor, raise your hand if you have ever lied before. Excellent. Keep your hand up, extra points, if you're willing to admit you've lied this week. 
Oh, come on now. Put it up. You're lying now about that. <laughs> All right? Raise your hand if you have ever stolen from somebody before. It doesn't matter how small or who it was from. Raise your hand if you've ever taken something that was not yours. Good, 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 all right? So right off the bat, we're, all, we're already breaking two of them, okay? We're not doing too hot at the most simplistic level, but here's the deal. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, ratchets things up a level, and he actually says that if you have been angry with your brother, then you have murdered him in your heart. So how many of you have a sibling? You are all mass murderers, okay? We're not doing that good by our own admission. I don't say this to judge you, that's not the point. I'm right there with you, but I say this to point out how incorrect our self-perception is. We are so comfortable with sin in our lives that we don't even notice it anymore, just like Israel. Okay, and I wanna say this, God's discipline in your life does not always come as a direct result of your sin. That's not always the case. Sometimes God will use the fallenness of this world to discipline you. Both are his gracious goodness still. He is making you more like him, okay? But oftentimes it does come because there is still ingrained sin in us that we don't even see. And if we keep reading the New Testament, we would read Paul talk about the sins of gossip and gluttony and sexual impurity and anger and divisiveness and harsh words and bitterness and envy and jealousy and legalism, pushing away the grace of God and a whole host of other things that secretly ravage our lives that we don't even think about most of the time. And here's the question I've had to wrestle with this last week. What would my life look like if I got so uncomfortable with existing sin that I did whatever it took to leave it behind? No matter how uncomfortable, no matter how detrimental to my image or my status, no matter what it costed. And not after some time, not as a last resort, but quickly and joyfully. What would God do in his church if we gave up and got tired of polite religiosity and just grabbed hold of him like he's all that we had? Can we get over, frankly, can we get over ourselves long enough to let his grace actually get to work? And can we afford not to? So we exist as believers in Jesus in this beautiful tension. We cannot outfail God's grace. We cannot have his love without his discipline, and we cannot keep him at a distance. That is God's work in us. All right, so this is what we're going to do with this. We are going to get humble before the Lord. At the end of the day, that is what Isaiah is hoping Judah will do. So whether you are a follower of Jesus or not, we need to get humble before God. That doesn't mean we go on and on and on about how bad we are and just you know, wallow in shame and guilt. That's weak Christianity if it's Christianity at all. Humble means recognizing we are in a mess we can't get ourselves out of, and then receiving the help we don't have a right to ask for. It's not a one-time or even an occasional thing. We're not asking Jesus to get us out of a tight jam every once in a while. We are asking Jesus to overhaul our lives, to flip them upside down, to so wonderfully mess them up, that we forget everything we thought about what it meant to live and embrace what he has instead. And I don't have a list of practical steps for you because we'd be here all day doing that, okay? We, it's everything in us that needs to change. But I can tell you this, 
because I know it in my life. If we can get humble before God, if we will receive his grace and not fight him on it, if we will cherish his discipline, if we will start doing things his way, we will step into a life worth living. So I'm gonna pray, as the, and the band's gonna make their way up. Um, yeah, let's go to a word of prayer. Jesus, we do sit humbly because we know, in our heart of hearts, we know. And we need you. So Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, and I pray for myself, that we would put ourselves aside for long enough to let your grace do its work and then keep doing that. And we ask that you would be faithful in the process to stick with us. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.